for me as a minority woman physician at many different stages of my career and along my own professional growth journey there were so many different experiences that I had in which I was facing or feeling discrimination and and from that kind of double jeopardy of both being a woman but also being a woman of color so if you actually, you know, look at the ways that um, women uh, experience discrimination in medicine, what I kept coming back to was that these are institutional choices. Those were the voices of Wendo Olewala, a family physician, corporate leader, researcher, and author, and Elizabeth Poorman, an internist, speaker, and writer. They both joined Review of Systems this week to talk about their work and the experiences of women in primary care in the era of Me Too. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast along the top to subscribe or find more information about our show, our guests, Drs. Alewala and Poorman, as well as an archive of our previous shows. So first, we'll speak with Dr. Portman about an article she published in The Guardian about the challenges that women physicians face. And then we'll talk with Dr. Olewala about an organization she started to respond to the specific challenges of women minority professionals and some experiences of discrimination that she experienced in her life and discusses in her book, Papaya Hut. Thanks for listening. Elizabeth, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So you wrote a really excellent article in The Guardian in January 2018, highlighting many of the inequalities that women face in medicine, and we'll link that on our website so people can read it in its entirety. But your central thesis was that many of these inequalities persist because institutions have failed to address discrimination in a concerted fashion, not because of individual failures on the part of these women. Tell us more about your argument. Right. So if you actually, you know, look at the ways that um, women uh, experience discrimination in medicine, uh, what I kept coming back to was that these are institutional choices. So uh, women are paid less by institutions uh, and often the, the negotiation process is incredibly opaque. So uh, they're probably not aware that they're being paid less. Uh, they're invited to be grand round speakers less. Uh, you know, they're less likely to get research grants. So these are not choices that individual women are making. These are choices that institutions are making uh, based on, you know, paying them back. And a lot of the discussion about women in medicine uh, not advancing has been about women's choices, especially in the home, their choices to have children. Um, but what we find actually is that, you know, men and women are choosing to have children and actually men are having children earlier and at higher rates than women in, in medicine, hmm. uh, but it's not affecting their careers in the same way. So uh, to me, you know, this is this is a misunderstanding of what the actual problem is. And it and it's been framed in a way that I think uh, sort of blames women or uh, you know, says that perhaps women just aren't prioritizing advancement. And to me, women are looking for advancement over and over again. They're not getting it. And so, you know, they may end up cutting back their hours or leaving medicine sooner, but that's because along the way they haven't been provided the same opportunities. Right. Or maybe getting these kind of hidden messages. They aren't as valued and they aren't, their work isn't seen as um, equally as their male colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, not even just hidden, you know, explicitly told, like I open my 
article with uh, a story about a friend of mine who was set, who was told, um, and she was, you know, just as accomplished as her partner. And they were couples matching, and she was told, uh, you know, not to worry about it because her partner was going to be running his department, and she was going to be taking care of their children. <laughs> Um, you know, and it, it was really, it was really devastating to her. Uh, yeah, but it's, so I think we get, we get those ex- explicit messages as well as implicit ones. I was once told as a medical student that, um, my voice was too high and I should get, uh, voice coaching and because people wouldn't take me seriously. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which right. I was like, okay, I'm not really sure how to respond to that. I mean, I know it was said with a, desire of trying to help me but um i think that it's more reflective on how people listen and hear me than my voice itself but anyway that's a whole nother story absolutely <laughs> no it's not. so i th- but i think that that story is, is very illustrative of the problem which is it's always about us changing ourselves to adapt to a culture that has valued the experiences of women less instead of insisting that our work be taken seriously on its own merit. Hmm. Uh, And I think that there's a pushback from women in all quarters on that front, but there hasn't been the institutional buy-in in terms of this uh, just persistent discrimination. So that's what I was trying to call attention to. Yeah. So just to name a few of the figures that you cited in your article, you wrote that women and men have been entering medicine at the same rates over the last 20 years, and yet uh, women hold only 15% of the department chairs and only 16% of medical school deans are women, and women hold only 30% of new tenured positions. In terms of the salary gap, it's been steady at about $51,000 less than women making $51,000 less than men. And then you know, lots of unclear and unsupportive, vague maternity policies. Right. So the, uh, the unadjusted gap is around 50 grand and then the adjusted gap is around 20 grand. I mean, that's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And I, and some of the things that are being adjusted for, um, you know, are also influenced by your gender, like your, your ability to get a research grant or, um, you know, if you have young kids, um, as anyone listening to this who has young kids knows, uh, your your schedule is not as uh, flexible, so you can't uh, you know necessarily take on the extra evening session uh, because you have to be present in the home. Uh, so I think you know that salary gap to me um, was it just floored me because you know in most of our negotiation processes we're told that the salary is not really negotiable, and then it turns out it 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 definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way for that to be addressed is for institutions to look internally and say, why are we systematically paying women less for the same work? Um, and a few institutions have done that, but but not many, yeah. not many. And then in terms of the maternity leave, Um, you know, uh, oftentimes physicians are told to just take FMLA as many women in this country are, and we should know better than anybody that, uh, maternity leave is, is different than having a disability is it's physically different. The recovery is different. And it's also oftentimes unpredictable, um, how sick you're going to be, if your child's going to be sick. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, um, in, in the process, it's not usually made explicit exactly what the policy is. And women are afraid to bring it up uh, because there's this perception that as soon as we get our first job out of residency that we're going to become pregnant. Um, so, I, I, you know, I know one woman, for instance, was told verbally she was going to get 12 weeks 
paid maternity leave. And then when she started, they said, actually, they changed it and it's going to be four. And she didn't get it in writing um, and she didn't feel you know, comfortable fighting it. But, it, you know, I mean, to me, that's just really, really poor. There's a, a woman physician, Michelle Au, who she's an anesthesiologist and uh, wrote a book about her experiences of motherhood and training. And she writes a blog pretty regularly called The Underwear Drawer, which I read. And um, I'll never forget when she, I think it was after her first son, she was still in training and um, she put pictures up of the closet basically where she had to go to pump because she was, you know, still nursing. Right. And um, I, I mean, <laughs> it was, it was awful. And I just, I don't know. It, I, I just thought, you know, this, you know, the smallest accommodation uh, of providing a woman a place to pump milk, not even that, just the time, the time in between cases or whatever, you know, just the smallest thing women have to, to fight to get. Right. To not, to not give, I mean, we, uh, you and I both have intimate awareness of what it's like to actually be a primary care physician. The time pressures mm-hmm. are enormous. And to say that, oh, you can just do it during your charting breaks as if we're not already trying yeah. to do the work of an hour in 15 minutes. That's that's the reality of our situation. And so, um, you know, when you have a biological need uh, that it, you know, it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I am in total awe and admiration of women who are actually able, uh, you know, to, to incorporate those different things. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I heard from one uh, attending physician that she, she was supervising uh, residents and one of the uh residence was breastfeeding and rounds went over and um she looked down and realized she had stained her shirt because she Mm -hmm. hadn't uh gone to pump and she kept apologizing and the attending kept saying to her you don't need to apologize for the fact that you're breastfeeding but it's just it's incredible to me that you know something that we're supposed to be promoting as physicians Mm -hmm. is a healthy option for our patients um we feel the need to apologize to our colleagues uh for doing So when I was preparing for this show, I was reading a little bit and I came across this fascinating paper published in JGIM by Mark Linzer and Eileen Harwood called Gendered Expectations. Do they contribute to high burnout among female physicians? And they wrote, patients have differing expectations of female versus male physicians. Female patients tend to seek more empathic listening and longer visits, especially with female physicians. However, female doctors are not provided for more time for this. Female doctors have more female patients than male doctors and more patients with psychosocial complexity. We propose that gender differences in patient panels and gendered expectations of female physicians may contribute to the high rate of burnout among female clinicians, as well as to the many female physicians working part-time to reduce stress in their work lives. So they go on to write a lot more about this, and it's a great paper, which again, we'll link from our website, and I encourage people to go read. we make some concrete suggestions on how this could be addressed systemically, you know, longer appointments for certain patients. Although, you know, depending on how productivity is evaluated in your practice, that could be really problematic. But nevertheless, it's a really important phenomenon that I, I totally see reflected in my daily practice, but um, I hadn't really thought about concretely until they, until I read this paper. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I, I I think it's a, I'm I'm so glad you sent this paper to me. Um, first of all, I am a Mark Linzer fan girl totally. <laughs> uh, I 
I have a lot of uh, trouble with the concept of burnout. I think it's uh, I think it's really problematic and and frankly a lot of times quite sloppy in the way that it's discussed. But I think he does incredible empathetic work on it. Um, and this paper, you know, explicitly making the connection between women physicians and burnout, I think is really important. I mean, the National Academy of Medicine re recently had a meeting where they talked about uh, burnout amongst women physicians. And uh, the point was brought up, perhaps women physicians are just more willing to admit that they're burned out. And I, I, there may be something to that, certainly, like it's difficult for men to um, admit to weakness, but I also was very frustrated that, um, you know, at this meeting that the different expectations that female physicians have, the, uh, you know, persistent discrimination and sexual harassment that we experienced, that it wasn't really taken seriously, that we might actually have legitimate reasons to be burned out that are hmm. uh, related to our workplace environment. Um, so I, I definitely agree with that. And I, and I thought that the, the most interesting uh, finding was that um, men do not want women to say, women physicians to say, I don't know. That they that they are more likely to um, to think that the woman physician doesn't know what she's talking about, and they don't respond to male physicians in that way. So admitting uncertainty, which you know, in these times with the way that medicine um, is advancing, I think is a fundamental uh, you know part of being a, a competent physician is to constantly say, this is the best decision that we have based on the evidence that we have available and based on what I know right now, but I'm going to keep an open mind that I could be wrong. Um, and the fact that, you know, women physicians are punished for doing that, um, I think, I think was incredibly illuminating. Um, but more to the point, the things that we do differently probably result in better patient care. We counsel more, we give more preventative care, we're, uh, score higher on empathy. Um, and yet, we're punished for that. So, um, to me, that that sheds light on a on a completely dysfunctional uh, system of rewards that uh, you know different um, attitudes and uh, practice styles of women physicians are actually in the be patient's best interest, and yet um, end up. Uh, you know, causing women physicians to run behind, to have lower productivity scores, to be uh, rated lower by patients. Um, so to me, that sort of is another another insight in, in, into the, you know, really screwed up mechanisms that we use to evaluate physicians. Yeah, I have to say the first thing that I was thinking as you, you know, kind of enumerated all the things that women physicians have been shown to do more than male physicians, you know, counseling uh, and so on can't bill for any of those yeah 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 absolutely so another area where you've written and spoken quite a lot about is depression in medicine and in training and some of the causes for it and um, how it's rampant in our field and not something that we talk about enough and um, it does happen more in women than in men um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, for women physicians, like we're saying, that to have a family, to balance those uh, expectations on either side um, is, is much more difficult for women, uh, both because the home life hasn't evolved uh, for men and women to take equal responsibility for uh, child care, uh, but more importantly, I think, uh, because 
um, you know, women physicians are rated lower. I think there was a study out of the Mayo Clinic that showed that when women had a baby, their uh, evaluations uh, plummeted, and when men had a baby, there was no effect. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that you know most women physicians are sexually harassed on a regular basis uh, by their colleagues, by their patients, um, and uh, we've a lot of us have been socialized to um, simply accept that, but it's it's definitely draining. Um, and then when you walk into a room, there's a certain amount of authority that comes with you know, particularly being a white male physician, uh, that's the stereotype of, uh, you know, a qualified physician. And so we're just sort of starting uh, behind, you know, when you're not those things, you're starting behind in terms of uh, convincing the person that you're, you're somebody to be uh, trusted, believed and respected. Um, you know, so I think, you know, there's all those, there's all those barriers. And then, you know, your scholarship is taken less seriously, the points that you're making on a day-to-day basis are taken less seriously, you're less likely to give grand rounds, and you're less likely to be referred to as a doctor by your colleagues. Um, So all of that can make an environment that's, you know, more difficult. But, um, you know, one thing that I think is really important, and I talk to a lot of uh, women physicians and medical students in training about, is empathy. So I think um, empathy is a very a very misunderstood concept in our field. Um, traditionally, male physicians uh, have been our teachers, our professors, they've been retained in academia, and uh, their uh, attitude about empathy has been to encourage us to show more empathy, to feel more empathy, to demonstrate more empathy, uh, without really thinking through what that means, what that looks like, uh, and what kind of empathy they're talking about. So I uh, found a paper about uh, different kinds of empathy that talks about intellectual empathy, emotional empathy, and compassion. Uh, And they were working with caregivers. I want to say that they were social workers and talked with them about uh, the differences between the different kind of empathy. And they found that, you know, those who experienced uh, a lot of intellectual empathy meaning they could sort of reason through how a patient um, experienced something, uh, had lower rates of depression. And then those who experienced higher rates of emotional empathy, meaning, you know, you walk into a room, a patient's very angry, you walk out and you feel that anger Mm -hmm. as if it were your own. Uh, those those people experience high rates of depression and burnout and a desire to leave the field. Um, but that subtlety is not really talked about. And I think that it requires people who naturally feel a lot of emotional empathy to understand that there's a difference. And then compassion uh, is, uh, you know, a little bit taking that emotional empathy but uh, recognizing your your place in in the pers- particular person's experience. So uh, the way that they helped uh, people in this study move from emotional empathy, which can be a useful tool, but can also be dangerous for them personally, uh, was to say, imagine this person is suffering, why they're suffering, and then imagine them being relieved of that suffering. And I use that on a daily basis when I feel, you know, overwhelmed with the tragedies of my patients and working with primarily undocumented immigrants and patients with addiction. uh, I experience, you know, a lot of emotional empathy and a lot of feelings of being overwhelmed. So using that compassion technique 
really helps me maintain my uh, perspective. It helps mm-hmm. me maintain my empathy for the patient, but not become overwhelmed by it. Hmm. Can you talk through just just one more time, talk through how you do this exercise for yourself? Yeah. So for instance, um, you know, I have a lot of patients who are experiencing domestic violence Mm -hmm. um, and and particularly if they're undocumented, uh, they uh, may not want to go to the police. As we know, um, our state has not taken any leadership uh, in terms of giving police guidelines about working with immigration officers. Uh, So in my particular town, uh, it's a little bit in Everett, Massachusetts, it's a little bit unclear. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So, you know, you'll have someone come in. Uh, So often I'll have people come in who are in incredibly dangerous situations um, and they don't necessarily want to go to the police. They may not be ready to leave. They have complicated feelings for, um, you know, the person that they're with. And, you know, traditionally, like, um, or my natural state is to, you know, just sort of feel that um, sense of desperation and fear and sadness that they feel and just really, you know, those feelings kind of, you know, kind of overtake me a little bit. And when I notice that happening, I will think, okay, this person is suffering. I care about them. I don't want them to suffer. And what would it take for them to not be in this situation anymore and not suffer? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it becomes clear through that exercise to me that, you know, I can't stop it, right? right so right. That, that's, that's hard too, but I can't stop it, but I can offer them, you know, uh, a listening ear and, you know, some support in terms of thinking through when you are ready to do these things. We have these resources for you and here's what you can do and I believe in you and I think that it can get better. So, you know, that works for domestic violence, it works for addiction, um, you know, really, really any kind of chronic danger that your patients are experiencing, you can kind of uh, think through that and it helps you, um, you know, kind of get a bird's eye view of your role in in whatever they're experiencing. Yeah, and kind of get get out of that moment a little bit. Right, get out of the moment a little bit because, um, you know, it's not necessarily helpful to them for you to become overwhelmed with the same feelings that they're bringing to you. But I think it is it is an incredibly useful tool um, to be able to kind of, you know, walk into somebody's emotional experience like mm-hmm. that. And I am grateful to have that tool, but I, I recognize that for my own well-being and for my own effectiveness with my patients, I have to learn how to manage it better. Yeah, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Audrey. It's, it's great to talk to you. We'll be right back with Wanda Oluma. Wanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you're the founder and CEO of an organization called the Association of Minority Women Professionals, and your group aims to provide support, mentoring, and professional development for minority women in a variety of professional settings. Tell us about why you started the organization and how you aim to support minority women professionals. You know, one of the reasons why I started the organization and and the movement uh, was because for me as a minority woman physician, I felt like 
many different stages of my career and along my own professional growth journey that there were so many different experiences that I had in which I was facing or feeling discrimination. Uh, and, and from that kind of double jeopardy of both being a woman, which by itself has its own level of, of gender discrimination, but also being a woman of color mm-hmm. um, and a woman, it's an immigrant and, and all these other things that identi- that I identify with. And, but then I, the more I talked about these things and started to kind of air these, these challenges with, with friends or colleagues or family members of mine who are also professional minority women and women who identified as minorities either for on the basis of their, their race, ethnicity, their gender preferences or sexual orientation, their national origin for a number of different reasons, their religious religion or religious identities. Um, I realized, wow, there are a lot of things that we have in common, you know, and, and this was women across professions. So it wasn't necessarily women that were physicians, but women across professions that were facing very similar challenges um, as they were growing professionally. So it seemed like there was a, a really important opportunity to try to create a safe space for people to come together and not just like vent their their challenges and their problems, but mm. really like help each other figure out how to get through them and how yeah. to grow professionally despite those realities. Right. Can you give an example of a commonality found across fields? So one, female physicians in particular on average, just have a lower salary than male physicians mm. of the same rank, the same specialty, same field. But when you add on women of color, you know, kind of include that additional, the additional identity, it becomes even lower. Mm. And so I know that this phenomenon has been present in, in medicine for a while, but then when you start to hear that, oh, this happens in law too. Oh, well, this happens in accounting. Uh, that's one of those places where you you realize there's a problem. But you know, part of what we're doing is not just to kind of all agree that there's a problem because we, we generally know that, even if we didn't realize it was outside of our own professions or outside of our own specialties. Yeah. But but the bigger thing is that most of us don't know what to do about that when we know it. Right. How do you, how do you negotiate a higher salary? How do you make yourself appear to be as qualified, uh, even though you you know that you are, but how right. do you make sure that it's 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 apparent that you are, um, or even more qualified than the than, than the male counterparts? And that's the thing, a tool that I think many people did not did not have. Right. right. And so it sounds like your organization really tries to equip women with these types of tools. What does your organization do? And if people are interested in attending any of your events, uh, how do they find out about it? Yeah, we we consider it a combination of what we say empowerment and equipment. Okay. So we want people to feel. Oh, okay, okay, I can do this. I can. I'm alone in my place of work. I'm a minority woman in my place of work. I'm one of a very few number of people that share my identity, and I'm alone. But I come to these these conferences, these workshops, uh, and I find strength in numbers. You know, um, to to pick off the warriors, uh, great phrase. But I find strength in these numbers, and then I so I'm empowered. I feel like I can go back. I can do it. I can make it. Other people are going through this, and I'm I I feel really inspired. But also. You know, on Monday we're 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 happy. We're like kind of on this high from the from the meetings and the conferences that we went to. But on Tuesday we need real skills, right? Yeah. We need like tools. So that's where the equipment comes in, like being able to actually have the tools. How do I negotiate? How do I really make the most out of a mentor and relationship? How do I find the right mentors? How do I apply self care in my life and still be successful? How do I find balance? So those are kind of things. So we have um on our website minoritywomenprofessionals.org. Find out more information and. We've got two big events coming up this this year in September and October. We are going to be having uh, 
to an East Coast and West Coast Minority Women Professionals conferences, one at Harvard Medical School in September and one in Oakland, California in October. And those are those are those are great opportunities for people to come and, and go through a whole number of different workshops and talks and, and networking. So it should be great. Wonderful. So in the last couple of months, there have been a, a lot of really excellent articles published about women in medicine and um you know, Elizabeth Poorman, who we also are speaking to for this program, wrote a really excellent one in The Guardian. And another one that I really enjoyed and struck a chord with me was Suzanne Coven's letter to young female physicians that she wrote in the New England Journal. She spent some time talking about this imposter effect, I guess, or this feeling that one is a fraud. And um, so she wrote, in fact, one of the greatest hurdles you confront may be one largely of your own making. At least that has been the case for me. You see, I'm haunted at every step of my career by the fear that I'm a fraud. And, you know, it's so funny to me reading that because I don't know, it just seems like Susan Covid would be the last person who would yeah. ever think herself a fraud. I don't know. I just wondered if you ever, you know, felt that way in the past or if women have spoken with you about that in, in your, you know, mentoring role um, and leadership roles and if you wanted to comment a little bit about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think she is extraordinarily brave for mentioning it and speaking out about it. And I would say that she's absolutely right. And one of the workshops we're going to have at our conferences this year is on imposter syndrome. I have two fantastic psychologists um, in the in the Bay Area, um, in Oakland and Berkeley, who are coming to lead a workshop on handling imposter syndrome and recognizing that you're not the only one that actually feels that. I've been so inspired by Maya Angelou um, many, many years ago. She talked about this and she she said something that and I, I'm also an author, so I, I think about this a lot. But she said something about um, I can't remember the exact words, but she said every time I, I come out with another book or another poem or something else, I feel like, oh, now they're going to find me out that I'm not <laughs> really I'm not really a great author. You know, like yeah. this is and she was struggling with that for much of her career. And I, I, and I, and it's, it's, you know, it's sad to hear that that happened, but it's also very encouraging um, for me to know that someone who I admire so much, you know, really kind of faced those same kind of feelings. It is very real. And, and the reason why we've added it to the standalone workshop um, at the conferences this year is because I know a lot of people who are struggling with this and, and it could be for many, many different reasons. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something that we're, we're, we're contending with and we can no longer really ignore. I didn't realize that Maya Angelou had written that. Roxanne Gay, a writer I really admire, I follow her on Twitter. She, I mean, she, she's amazing. And um, she actually tweeted a couple of weeks ago. She said, I'm just, I'm never going to write anything good again. <laughs> and just, you know, just a random tweet in the middle of the day. And I just thought, I, you know, this woman who has best-selling books and a New York Times yeah. column, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What no, our society no. does to women. So congratulations are in order. You recently published a really wonderful book called Papaya Head, uh, The Life Cycles of a First-Generation Daughter. Uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for acknowledging it and for reading it. It's a, I'm really excited about the book um, because I think that while it's designed to tell the stories of my own experience and my experience of some of my siblings um, around being first generation uh, children here and growing up through all the different kind of identity um, challenges that, that creates. Um, it is a story that I think a lot of people can relate to regardless of um, where their parents or they themselves have immigrated from. So it's really just um, a story of kind of how do you 
navigate these complexities that are created by all these different realities of your existence and your identity and hopefully come to a place where you're ultimately okay with that. And rather than trying to, um, to fit into any one place that you may not really ever fit, being really comfortable with, with who you are and kind of the combination of things that makes you unique. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a collection of stories. It's pretty chronological, so you can follow your, your life story in it. But a theme that comes up a few times is um, incidents. There's, I mean, a lot of discussion of the racial discrimination that you and your family faced, but um, a couple of specific instances came up about comments that people made to you um, or your sisters about your hair. And I know that's... Um, I've seen insensitive comments like that in my workplace, and I think that that's a pretty, unfortunately, still common thing that occurs. And I don't know. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the incidents that you wrote about. And well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I I've I'm not qu- quite fully understood the kind of infatuation with black women's hair <laughs> by by non by non black women. Like, what what is it about it that makes people so curious about it and you know so intrigued um and in some in some cases like offended by it um and you know just interestingly this morning i had a conversation with my daughter as we were getting ready and she's doing a a dance uh team thing and uh, they said today you know they're going to work with them on styling their hair learning how to style their hair because part of being part of uh, dance culture is learning how to do your own makeup and how to do your own hair and and she said, you know, I have braids in. So what what should I do? <laughs> I said, you should style your braids because that's that's the hairstyle that you have right now. And and she's like, okay, that's fine. And that, that made perfect sense to her. I started to think in the back of my mind, oh gosh, I hope that there there isn't a layer underneath that that I'm going to have to kind of respond to yeah. and say, you know, she's we're going to keep her braids in. She has her braids right now, and that's what we're going to do. Um, there's been a movie made about kind of black women hair, like a whole, you know, it's, it's a billion dollar industry. There's a lot that's invested in, 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 in black women having their hair, but, and maybe that's part of why there is this level of kind of curiosity around what it is. I don't necessarily think when people ask or approach it that they're always intending to be insensitive, but just not realizing that, you know, hair is a real kind of sacred thing for a lot of women and particularly for, for, for black women. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on it, not just the time kind of doing it and getting it to the way we want it to be, but thinking about what we're going to do about, you know, w- with it. And so it it's it, to us, it comes off pretty offensive when people are asking questions about, you know, why does it look like that? How does it change? What is what did you do? Why is it thick? Why is it kinky? You know, and things like that. It just comes off as offensive, even though I don't necessarily always think people are, are malintentioned, but mm. it just comes off as as kind of an invasion of our space. Because I think on the contrary, like, because I, you know, I don't, I certainly don't, I mean, I'll I'll comment when I see someone's hair that's nice and say, oh, I like, you know, I like your hair, you know, and, but I don't spend a lot of time like asking, why is your hair like that? How Mm -hmm. does it do that? You Mm -hmm. know, why does it, you know, twist that way? And I I don't, so it it almost seems odd to me when people spend time on that for me. Yeah. I guess. Particularly when I'm I'm not in most, I'm sorry, that's to cut you off, but in most situations, I'm not there to talk about my hair. I'm I'm usually there for another reason that's like based on some kind of content that I'm hoping to get to and then you know, you lose kind of time with that. Yeah. Yeah. None of the comments I've seen have ever been ill-intentioned, but I think that they, uh, they come from a place where the assumption is that hair should be like white women's hair, like we see in, for the most part in commercials and movies and whatnot. So that's just offensive. Um, yeah. 
That's I think that's I think that's a good way to state it because it, it does come from an assumption that there is this the the right hair mm-hmm. and then you have this other hair, right? And yeah. so it's 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 being asked in the sense that this is the other as opposed to this is what what it is. And um, so yeah, that that's that's why I think it can, it can be particularly offensive. Yeah. And so, but I but I think part of what the story talks about is kind of this journey um, where you know it's it can be really hard to figure out. It's particularly when you're younger. How do you an- answer that when a dominant culture exists and, and, and you feel like you are not part of that dominant culture around the, the issue of hair? Mm-hmm. You know, how does my daughter who's eight kind of wrestle with this her whole life? I can't go and like be a part of all the conversations where this happens, but I've got to really prepare her and equip her to be strong and proud about the hair that she has and not feel like it's, an, it's, it's a one-off, you know, that it's really who she is and, and, and to embrace it. Yeah. The movie you briefly mentioned is called Good Hair and... I think it was made by Chris Rock, I believe. Yeah. I, yes, I yeah. saw it a, a couple of years ago. I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. Yeah. So what else do you want people to know about, about your book and where can they find it? The book is available on Amazon.com and so available both in paperback and, and in Kindle formats. Um, well, there'll be an audible version out pretty soon as well. So for people that like to listen to books, um, it'll be there. And, um, and, I, and I honestly think that what I want people to know more than anything is that this is, you know, one story told through the lens that I have, but I do think it has a lot of parallels. And in fact, the feedback that I've been getting from people who come from all different backgrounds so far that have read it has been really inspiring in the sense that, you know, someone came to me the other day, she's, she has a, a Filipina heritage and she said, oh my goodness, I can't believe how much these stories sound like my life. Mm-hmm. And Thank you for telling them. I've, I've never really thought about what's what's underneath some of the things that, that I've struggled with, but I feel like you you, you told a lot of stories that really ring true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping that what will happen is that people will see that there is a sh- almost a, a very unique, I mean, all different immigrant groups face different experiences and individual families have different experiences, but there is kind of a shared thread of experience that, that people have. And if we can see that as a way to start to come together around things and, you know, not, not get caught up in the things that separate us, but the things that really make a lot of different groups more alike than different, then I feel like that would be a great kind of um, reaction to the book overall. Yeah. I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the stories. I, you know, I'm Caucasian background, so I I wouldn't say that um, I'm able to relate to the stories in the sense of, um, you know, my experiences growing up, but they're wonderfully told and I think help me better understand the experience of, of other people in, um, in our country. So yeah. and I think especially in this time right now, these stories are, are really important. Yeah. No, well, I, if that happens too, I don't think you have to necessarily share the experience, but to be mm-hmm. more sensitive to the experience, like I think even, you know, for you, you already have, uh, you know, sensitivity around you that, that is respectful and everything. But I think, you know, if someone reads this and says, okay, I'm going to pause before I kind of go, you know, I have a an African-American woman, you know, sitting next to me and I start to go in detail about her hair unless she invites me to do that. I think, if, you know, if you, if that's all someone gets from it and, and, and they kind of realize that there might be, you know, some kind of um, sanctity around that, that topic and they, they kind of pause before they do that or they're invited in to do that, then I think that that's great too, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think you have to have had the, the same experiences, but even just understanding that, you know, the perspectives and the places that we're coming from might be very different your own and you don't have to necessarily have lived it but you should appreciate it absolutely thank you so much Wanda thank you
You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on Arwitz Podcast along the top to find more information about our show, links to subscribe, and an archive of our previous shows. You can find links to more information about Drs. Porman and Nolewla, and links to their writings and the articles we discussed. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show and share us on social media and with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us at contact.rospod.org, or you can tweet us at ROSpodcast or at HMS Primary Care. Thanks for listening. <laughs>